Well, I turn now in our here in the Bible to our scripture lesson for this morning as we continue our examination of 1 Corinthians. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 17 through 34 today. We'll be concentrating today on the problem of factions as it relates to the Lord's Supper, and in the coming weeks uh, we'll uh, get more into the doctrine of the Lord's Supper and into some other things Paul teaches there, particularly about discerning the Lord's body. But today we're going to read this whole passage, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. And this is God's holy word as he gave to the Apostle Paul, and so we know that as it was inspired by God, it is therefore his inerrant word, it is the word of the living God, and so let's attend with reverence to its reading. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that There are divisions among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. And this ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing. Well, it's not, as I already mentioned, my intention for today to dig into the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, Uh, nor to deal with the depth of what it means to discern the Lord's body and to engage in self-examination. Lord willing, we'll get into those things over the next couple of Lord's Days. Today I'm only going to touch on those things as they relate to the matter of factions in the church. That's the problem underlying what Paul's dealing with here. 
Those of you who were here when we began this sermon series in 1 Corinthians uh, will likely recall that a major problem in the Corinthian church, which Paul sought to address with this letter, uh, was the problem of factionalization, of division, unnecessary division, a divisive spirit had permeated the Corinthian congregation. The members of the church had divided into parties or factions based on who their favorite teachers were, who they liked to teach God's word better. Some were saying they were of Paul, and others were saying, well, I am of Apollos, and others were claiming to be of Cephas, that is Peter, while others were saying, I am of Christ. And of course, as we went along there, Paul teaches that's technically the correct answer. We should recognize Christ is not divided, and we should all be of Christ. But sadly, that was another contribution to the division of the congregation. Those will note here, he acknowledges that uh, if some people are wrong and some people are right, then obviously there's going to be a division there, sadly. And the, the ones who are right should not simply go along with those who are wrong. Paul spends a lot of time in the early chapters of this book, of this letter, dealing with those inappropriate divisions in the church of Corinth. And today we find another way in which that divisive spirit has caused problems. We find another symptom, if you will, of that divisive spirit. Aside from the topics I intend to handle over the next couple of Sabbaths, uh, I find four major lessons about factions uh, in this passage. We'll also find lessons about the Lord's Supper, uh, lessons about self-examination and discernment of the body of the Lord. But as we deal with this issue of factions, we see four major lessons. Number one, factions are sometimes a sad necessity in the church. But, number two, a divisive spirit can damage even the most sacred of things that the church does and that God has given to the church. Three, did I say four? There are three lessons. Uh, yeah, I guess there are four. Three, the, the church can overcome divisions by exercising patience and by a proper regard for the Lord's Supper. So three major with two subheadings underneath the, the last one. So Paul begins the passage with the statement, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. Maybe I've been talking to our little girls when they were learning to count, and they would often skip three. They'd say one, two, four. And so maybe I did that just now. So there are three major, three major lessons here, but there, or four, depending on how you count it. There are two subheadings to the, that last, to that third one. But Paul begins this passage here, saying that he does not praise the Corinthians. You might remember from last week that he began the last passage with those words in verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. So there had been some things that Paul had delivered to them that they were pretty good about doing. So while he praised the Corinthians, though, uh, for keeping certain practices that he delivered to them and doing it well, He does not praise them in everything, and in this passage says, I deliver to you the Lord's Supper this way, and you have monkeyed with it, so to speak. 
Not by the outward form, but by the attitude that they brought when they came to it. So particularly, as we'll see, they've disrupted the Lord's Supper in the way that he delivered it to them. The word translated now at the beginning of verse 17 is actually the Greek word duh, which usually gets translated as and or but, depending on its context. It indicates a break in subject of discussion, but not necessarily a hard break. And also, interestingly, while most translations will read these instructions, the Greek actually is a singular word, this. Literally, it's something like this. But this giving of instruction, not I praise you. Uh, Bible scholars point out that in the New Testament, when that word is particularly used, it usually refers to something that has already been said. So while Paul is breaking his topic by saying, I did praise you, but I don't praise you now, he's also saying this has some connection to what he's just been talking about. The last passage was about a proper order of things. And Paul, it seems, is saying, I'm talking about a proper order of things in regard to which I have praised you. However, there's also a way in which you have broken the proper order of things. As he says, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. And he explains, verse 18, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, before he gets into the bad things about divisions, he says there's one way in which it's positive. It's bad that it needs to be, but there's a sense in which there's a necessity for factionalization in the church when it happens. Sometimes a division can be a sad necessity. And that's our first point. Factions are sometimes a sad necessity in the church. Verse 18 and 19. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now, something Paul is actually possibly speaking facetiously here that he's talking about those who are approved as in those whom you wrongly approve. They believe uh, he's poking fun at those who factionalize because they think of themselves perhaps as superior to others. As if he's saying sarcastically, well, of course there have to be divisions among you. How how else will you know who to look down your nose at? (laughs) However, uh, most Bible scholars seem to understand that Paul is pointing out a sad fact. If some in this fallen world are going to stray from the truth, that's going to create a necessary division in the church because unless everybody else goes along with them in straying from the truth, they're going to be now separated from people who don't stray. By default, there will also be a faction made up of those people who stick to the truth. They sadly have to be divided from those who are in error. Uh, One of the the uh, underhanded tactics kind of used by progressive liberals in the modern church is that they'll, they'll try to make significant changes to the church's doctrine. And then there will be people who will object and say, no, I can't go along with that. You're undermining the gospel with what you're teaching and what you're practicing. And then they'll say, well, you're just a schismatic. <laughs> you're, you're divisive. 
because you're not going along with us and sticking with what the church is doing, what the institution that they're calling the church is doing. But sadly, sometimes what happens is if there are people who are professing Christ, and maybe they're, they are true Christians, but they're just in error, but they're, they're, they're embracing this error, and they're trying to bring others along with them into the error, and others are saying, no, I can't go along with that error. You know, I joined the RPCNA not because I believe it's perfect, but because I did determine that it was correct in the areas that I was concerned with and was examining. I'm glad it exists. But our little denomination only exists as a separate church institutionally from other branches of Christ's church because of the existence of sin and error. When two groups of Christians differ in doctrine, somebody is wrong. Maybe both of them. But somebody's wrong. They can't both be right. On some matters, it could be that we're wrong. And we have to be open to being reformed. In regard to other matters, it's other churches, other visible bodies of Christ's church who have erred. The really necessary divisions, and so that's going to create some divisions that we pray can be healed that we can work together, be iron sharpening iron, and, and find where maybe one of us is wrong on our application of Scripture, and we can be reunited. But the really necessary division, of course, happens when a faction in the church is embracing something that's outright heresy, or that significant, that's a significant enough error that it's actually undermining the gospel, or the general authority of God's word, and therefore those who are faithful believers have to say, well, I have to be separate from that. Our Reformed Presbyterian testimony states, divisions that separate believers into denominations mar the unity of the church and are due to error and sin. So if it weren't for error and sin, the church would be clearly, visibly unified. It is the duty of all denominations, which are true churches of Christ, to seek reconciliation and union. Such organizational unity, however, should be sought only on the basis of truth and of scriptural order. Part of the problem of ecumenism that's happened in the last couple of centuries is that churches will start to unify, and when they have significant differences over application of scriptural doctrine, or even of the doctrine itself, they'll just simply act as if, well, those don't matter. And they end up becoming a sort of anything-goes denomination. And that's, that isn't the kind of union that is healthy. It ends up uh, with churches that become more and more progressive and are departing from God's truth more and more. So as our testimony says, such organizational unity, however, should be sought only on the basis of truth and of scriptural order. It is the duty of every believer to unite with the branch of the visible church which adheres most closely to the scriptures. And then it also states... When any church imposes sinful requirements for membership, when its constitution or creedal statements are fundamentally unscriptural, when its administration is corrupt, or when sound preaching and proper discipline are neglected, it is the duty of Christians to attempt, to re- to attempt its reformation. Then, if such efforts prove ineffectual, it is their duty to separate from it and to unite with a sound church. Factions are sometimes a sad necessity. It isn't that, that those who are right in factionalizing in those rare cases uh, are creating the new faction, though. What happens is that 
that there are those who are leaving behind the truth of God's word and some who say we can't leave it. We have to stand where we are. And if that means being functionally separated from those of you who are leaving this truth behind, then that's a sad fact. But we can't go along with this wickedness. Factions are sometimes a sad necessity in the church. But, number two, we have to be very cautious about that and not simply say, oh well, factions are a sad necessity of the church and then just accept every division that we see and that we might be a part of. A divisive spirit can damage even the most sacred things the church does. That's our second point here. When I say divisive spirit here, I'm not talking necessarily about demonic activity, though, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4, false teachings are doctrines of demons. Uh, But here, we're talking about spirit more in the sense of attitude. But again, verse 17 sets the stage for Paul's teaching on this matter. Now, in giving these instructions... I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. So their their coming together is doing something that's making things worse. Paul's concerned about the negative effect divisiveness has on what happens when they're gathering for worship. And especially, as we'll see, when they're coming together for the Lord's Supper. He says, now when you come together, something is worse. And he uses there a word that regards moral evil, not just sort of a, a relative sense of this is, this is less good than that. But he's talking about moral evil. It's for a greater evil that they're coming together. In particular, we see this as because of how their factional spirit has destroyed the harmony of the Lord's table. And that's in verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, we'll see in the following verses that they were clearly eating something, right? And that they thought it was the Lord's Supper. So it's not that he's saying, I'm condemning you for having failed to observe the sacrament. They're going through the outward motions of having the Lord's Supper. They're calling it the Lord's Supper when they do this. But Paul is not condemning them for failing to observe the sacrament altogether, but rather for failing to observe it properly for doing things that so undermined the meaning of the Lord's Supper that it had turned it into something else when they were doing it. He says in verse 21, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, from what little Paul tells us here, we can determine some things about what was actually happening there in Corinth, especially when we uh, couple this with what we see from early church fathers, the testimony of what was common in the early church, certain common practices. It was a very common thing, especially in the first century, for churches to share a meal on the Lord's Day. They would share meals together at other times as well, but especially on the Lord's Day, and they would call this the love feast, the agape feast. And it was often the case that the Lord's Supper would be observed during that meal. So you'd be having a feast, and then in the midst of that, have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And offhand, doesn't that seem biblical? After all, didn't Jesus institute the sacrament in the midst of a larger meal? And there isn't anything theologically wrong with having that fellowship meal together, and in the midst of it, then setting aside time to have the sacrament. So why is it that for most of the history of the church... 
most of the church has kept the sacrament completely separate from any fellowship meals and things that they might be enjoying together. Well, it's as a faithful application, this isn't a universal commandment saying it's always wrong to have it in a, during a meal or always right, but it's because they're trying to avoid the problem that Paul is pointing out here. Precisely because of what Paul teaches in this passage. Paul says in verse 22 that they can eat their fill in their own homes. That's not what the uh, sacred meal is for. Indeed, worse than just a distraction from the intent of the sacrament by having it in the midst of this larger meal and having a lavish meal, apparently, the divisive spirit in the congregation broke down the unity of what the feast itself was supposed to be about, about what the fellowship meal was about, which also then broke down the unity of the Lord's Supper. Simon J. Kistemacher, a Reformed commentator, Uh, summarizes what the biblical and historical scholarship supports on this. He writes, In all probability, the Corinthians observed class distinctions in worship services and at the love feasts. Prominent members received preferential treatment. The rich people consumed choice food from their own larders and left the remainder for the poor. They had no patience to wait until everyone had arrived. Instead, they ate without waiting for the day laborers and slaves. And so, uh, we should stop there and point out that the love feast, again, did not have to happen always on the Lord's Day, but also that uh, slaves in a culture, especially if they're slaves of unbelievers, didn't exactly have the choice. They couldn't say, hey, you know, it's the first day of the week. I'm going to go to church. I'm not going to be here to serve you, Master. <laughs> they didn't have that freedom, right? <clears throat> They'd have to labor or whatever day it was. But Kistemacher goes on here and says, we conjecture that some of the poor who were unable to come earlier, saw that all the food had been consumed. They are the ones whom Paul describes as being hungry. The affluent, by contrast, had used their time to eat their fill and drink excessively. Of course, we even see that Paul says some of them were drunk, which itself is a sin. So they're even engaging in sin and claiming that this is part of their Christian freedom or something. Uh, this, This makes the Lord's Supper as they engage in it during the midst of such a meal, something other than the actual Lord's Supper. So Paul exclaims in verse 22, What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Think of how people felt when if people are bringing their own food and eating these lavish meals and then, uh, well, you don't have anything and I'm not going to share what I've got or I just eat it all before you get there. How does that make people feel? Does that, make them, does that make them feel like they're actually brothers and sisters with those people? Are they, are they a, an organic church family? No. Paul says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in that? I do not praise you. To show them how serious this is, Paul reminds them of the sacredness of the Lord's Supper. Jesus had taught Paul, and Paul had delivered the sacrament to the Corinthians just as Jesus had taught him. Like the other apostles, as we piece together what Paul says in Galatians and what we see in the book of Acts, uh, Paul actually went into the wilderness for about three years and Christ appeared to him and trained him for the ministry. So he got late, later than the other apostles, he got that sort of three-year training period that the other apostles did. But this is something that Jesus would have taught Paul and 
Paul is teaching to the church, delivering to the church. This is Jesus' gift, and they're misusing it. Verses 23 through 26, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So Lord willing, next week, I'll dig more into the doctrine of the Lord's Supper from those verses there. But for now, notice it's a solemn and sacred undertaking, which points to Christ's atoning death. On behalf of his people, as long as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, Paul says. And here, his people were needlessly and callously dividing themselves from one another and partaking of the representation of Christ's body and blood, which he gave for all of his people, and having total disregard for others who were also members of the body of Christ. The element of communion, or elements, I should say, of communion point among other things, to the fact that Christ's people are one body. Paul warns their behavior has led them to partake of this sacrament in an unworthy manner. This is because they were not discerning the body, as he says. And again, Lord willing, we'll get into that in a couple of weeks. But one application of the the issue of discerning the body is clearly in this context that we have to see the unity of the church, that all believers are members of the same body. There is one people for whom Christ died. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If we despise members of Christ's body, we cannot partake of the sacrament worthily, in a worthy manner. Paul writes in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of Jesus. And he therefore emphasizes the importance of self-examination before coming to the Lord's table in verses 28 through 32. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. A divisive spirit can damage even the most sacred of things that the church does. It can bring God's judgment upon us. Number three, then, the church can overcome this divisiveness, however, by doing two things. Uh, There are certainly other things the church can do uh, to... uh, heal divisiveness, heal division, to overcome division. But Paul mentions two particularly in this passage. One is exercising patience. Verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Actually have regard, patient regard, for other believers around you. Wait for one another. Be patient with each other. So, and that can be more broadly applied. 
not just waiting so that we can all eat together, but just being patient with one another in general. And B, having a proper regard for the Lord's Supper. Verse 34. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So Paul is saying there, you have undermined the Lord's Supper through this impatient uh, eating, and you're eating your fill, and other people aren't eating at all, and uh, if they're careful to do away with the abuses surrounding the Lord's Supper then, if they take care with it, if they remember how Paul had delivered it to them, just as he'd received it from Christ, and they apply it and use it correctly, then that will go a long way to healing the division and the divisiveness in their congregation. They should eat at home rather than distract from the sacrament, for example, The Lord's Supper is about spiritual nourishment rather than physical. It doesn't mean they shouldn't have fellowship meals or have a love feast, but they need to handle it rightly. So just quickly to recap, factions are sometimes a sad necessity in the church. Divisions in the visible church are due to error and sin, and we'll always have that with us as long as this world lasts. You don't have to be super critical But be sure you're joined to a Bible-believing church that's striving to be as biblical as possible. But remember, a divisive spirit can damage even the most sacred things the church does. So on the one hand, there have to be divisions so that people who are trying to be biblical have to be separated from those who aren't, right? But any kind of divisive spirit can damage even the most sacred things Christ has given the church. So flee from unnecessary divisions. Yes, be willing to be apart from those who are in serious error, but don't factionalize over matters on which the Bible is indifferent. And certainly not to embrace what it condemns. And seek to overcome division. Two things you can do to help overcome division that Paul points out here, is exercising patience with your brothers and sisters. Sometimes people are confused about these errors, things. We need to be patient with them and work with them patiently. And then also have a proper regard for the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, as we will see in the coming weeks, uh, is, is something that points to the unity of the church in Christ. The unity of people who are uh, for whom Christ died. I should put it that way. So have a proper regard for the Lord's Supper. Take care how you observe it. And as we'll see next time, when observed biblically, it points to and bolsters the true spiritual unity of the body of Christ. Well, let's pray now. Lord, help us to be unified with your people. We know factions can be necessary in this fallen world so that your people might be separated from error. But help us to overcome such error and division. When two bodies of believers differ on particulars of our understanding and application of Scripture, if we have a clear understanding of the truth of Scripture, let us work together and be iron sharpening iron so that we might see visible unity that reflects the true spiritual unity your people already have. And where some are forsaking the gospel, we pray that we would not be dragged along with them. So we pray that we would not be needlessly divided, but that we would have division from untruth. 
May we regard the Lord's Supper correctly. Might we be patient with one another, Lord. Grant that we would use the Lord's Supper correctly and and that one of the many things that it points to would be the, the true unity of the body of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.